0: You know what the most dangerous thing in America is, right? Nigga with a library card. This is the Most Dangerous Thing in America podcast, a show in which we read books by black authors and they are talked about by a black author and you can listen if you are black or not black. This week on the podcast, we read Stanley Crouch's 1995 collection of essays titled The All-American Skin Game and we're going to talk about it. So let's hop in first, how did I come to this book? Well, A couple of years ago, I wrote a piece called Schrodinger's Black Man, in which I read two books by Thomas Chatterton Williams. Uh, One of the books was Losing My Cool, and the other book was Self-Portrait in Black and White. And in these books, he talks about, well, Self-Portrait in Black and White in particular, he talks about the case for not identifying by race anymore. And two writers that he talks about quite a bit, are Albert Murray and Ralph Ellison. And then a third was Stanley Crouch. So that's how I was introduced to Stanley Crouch. I bought a book of his. I I left it on my Kindle, and it kind of just sat there. And then I was looking for books for the podcast, and I decided now is as good a time as any. Um, He had also just passed away in 2020. And yeah, so who was he? Stanley Crouch was a jazz critic and a cultural critic. And he was involved in the Civil Rights Movement in the 1940s, or 50s, excuse me. And then, from late 50s into the 60s. And then was also part of the Black Power Movement that emerged out of that. And that's where he became disillusioned and kind of took an ideological break from the Black Power Movement. And that defined who he was for the rest of his career. Kind of railing against what he saw as the Balkanization of America... And how he saw black power kind of ruining the vision laid out by Martin Luther King of a unified America. So really, after 1964, Stanley Crouch, so the is when the Civil Rights Act happened. And that's when Stanley Crouch really kind of gets like, you know, disillusioned or starts to get disillusioned. So that would define those two epochs, epochs of his life. One is pre-1964, one is post-1964. Okay we'll get we'll get into that a little bit later. So let's just talk about the book itself. All right first of all, the structure of the book. So it's split into five sections. The last section is uh, a standalone essay and he writes what does he write about this last section? He says the last essay is a high style out chorus for the collection, which is kind of like a a nod to jazz. a lot of the book so, jazz is featured prominently we'll get to that in just a section, second in just a second but this this habit of introducing essays feels a lot like an mc on an old jazz record telling you who's going to play on this instrument and that instrument so um, that's kind of what he's doing here so he has this little like introduction to this essay and he calls it a high style out course for the collection okay so that's the fifth section the first four sections are really the bulk of the Text And so the first two sections, they deal with cultural criticism and literary criticism. They are by far and away the least enjoyable parts of the book. They're necessary to understand Crouch's worldview, but definitely not fun to read. I'll get into those reasons. And then the last two sections are his jazz and movie criticism. Also, you know, are very much in the Crouchian style, but... His command of jazz and his writing about movies is like way more even-handed and fine to get through. And um, his style doesn't feel so abrasive. Okay, so let's talk about the writing, the style, the opinions, and why I found the first two sections so disagreeable. And why why Stanley Crouch was such a controversial figure uh, in the 1990s and, and and into the 2000s. Okay, about his writing. So first of all, heavy on the repetition. The word jazz is repeated throughout the text, more than 150 times. He thinks about jazz as a worldview. He offers it up as a solution to um, how to get countries in the Western Hemisphere to cooperate better. Like he offers it up as a piece of soft power. So yeah, so he thought of jazz as like this cure-all, this thing that could work as like a soft power and a thing that represented the best of America. It was the democratic ideal in artistic form. So anyway, he repeats jazz 150 times. Blues is, is repeated over 100 times throughout the text and is the name of several different uh, pieces in the, in the collection. And jazz and blues is really more than just like musical terms. This is a worldview. In the introduction, he says, jazz is very important to my vision of life and our time. He really sees jazz and blues as like an understanding of the world. Okay. Uh, aside from those two words, he also uses the word gumbo, protean, and then uh, miscegenation, 40 times together. So all of these words are kind of jazz, blues, miscegenation, and gumbo are certainly all dealing with this idea of mixture and um, a bunch of different things coming together because of clashes of culture and then creating something better. So that is his big overall theme. And these words, and then protein is just about quick changing uh, quick changing society that we live in. But those first four words really hammer home Crouch's ideas. And what he really believes is that, you know, we need unity, we need to de-emphasize the things that that divide us, which is a which is a fine idea. But the way he goes about it is a different thing. So then let's get into his writing style. His writing style so we've talked about his idealism and what he wants. But then to get to what he wants, what he often does is tear down people who he doesn't like. In this book, he goes after, in this book, in his in his essays, he goes after Louis Farrakhan. Fair enough. Malcolm X. All right, you could see at the time, you know, controversial. Spike Lee. Perhaps James Baldwin. Okay, now we're starting to... Tony Morrison. All right, now we're starting to get to the point of like, maybe you... Maybe you could have a different way of going about criticizing these people. Because what does he say about James Baldwin? Does he say, I disagree with James Baldwin's ideas. James Baldwin has some, James Baldwin is wrong about, no. He writes, James Baldwin, the professional Negro, a person whose identity and whose struggle constituted a commodity. Tony Morrison, does he offer up a legitimate literary criticism or critique of Tony Morrison? No. He says, Unlike those literary critics who put high class seals on the bottles of bathtub corn liquor Toni Morrison produces, he accuses her works of art as being bottles of bathtub corn liquor, you know? So this is part of the Crouch problem. His writing often sounds bombastic. His argumentation is often weak. He has a propensity for petty insults and he can't help himself at times. So I thought the best example of this was his essay on Derek Bell. Okay. First of all, the title of the essay is Dumbbell Blues. Okay. Already just a completely juvenile title. All right. That's the first thing. The second thing is that in this essay, Crouch is upset because Bell had um chosen to step away from Harvard Law School because there was no tenured black female on the faculty. now, This is early 90s, okay? So, you know, in Crouch's mind, this is an example of balkanization, and, you know, he talks about how there doesn't necessarily need to be a black person uh, or a black female on the faculty for young black women to have role models. They can have role models who are white females, right? Which, to me, misses the point. But fine, let's say that that's some kind of fair criticism. okay. And his other criticism is that we should be focusing on getting highly qualified people in these positions and not necessarily just a black person, right which is a very um somewhat anti-affirmative action act, affirmative action position. These are fine arguments. I don't think that Derek Bell would be a person who would say that like no, black men can only look up to black women or that or that uh, the person who should be in Harvard Law School should be a black woman, regardless of qualifications. That doesn't, doesn't sound like what Derek Bell would, would say, and that's not what Crouch accuses him of. Instead, in this essay, he relates a story of a time when he was on a panel with Ralph Ellison, who he mentions over 50 times in the book. He loves Ralph Ellison. He mentions that he, Ralph Ellison, and Derek Bell were on a panel, and he entrapped Bell in a contradiction, and Bell admitted to the contradiction in the moment. And Crouch says in the essay, this shows that Bell's whole philosophy is determined by pessimism. It's fundamentally flawed. Because of this interaction, Bell is wrong. It's like, oh, all right, I guess. And then he ends the essay two paragraphs later by making fun of Malcolm X and James Baldwin. I mean, literally, it's the last sentence of the essay. So it's things like this that just kind of make you weary of Crouch's writing style. In a different essay, he writes about, so I mean, this, the first, again, the first part of this book, so there are five parts, the first part of this book is all of these essays about cultural criticism, usually about black public figures who are spreading information to the black community that Bell doesn't, or that uh, Crouch doesn't appreciate. And sometimes they're like, People like Lewis Farrakhan, where you're like, right, okay, I get it. And sometimes there are people like Derek Bell and James Baldwin, and you don't really get it. To wit, he has another essay about W.E.B. Du Bois' um, famous double consciousness concept. And he really takes this to task. And his big deal with the double consciousness thing. So first of all, he writes an essay saying W.E.B. Du Bois has bad ideas. You would think that he would be attacking something like the talented 10th principle, which has now been you know, more or less widely rejected by any non-elitist black person is like, oh, that's an idea that sucks, right? Nobody likes that idea. And that the Talented Tith idea was basically like, there's going to be 10% of freedmen, of of free Negroes. Crouch really likes Negroes, so we'll honor him by using the word Negroes. There's going to be 10% of free Negroes who will lead the rest of the peasantry, the black peasantry, out of the muck, out of the mire, and into the modern age. This was a Du Bois idea. Uh, that's been roundly rejected. You would think maybe he'd go after that, but instead he goes after double consciousness. And his reasons for going after double consciousness are basically that the idea is murky and um, I believe he uses the term anarchic, like a, related to anarchy and kind of like it doesn't have true, clear intellectual thought, is is Crouch's main contention against double consciousness. But his essay is as murky and makes as little sense As anything Du Bois wrote, who was writing almost 100 years earlier and at the very beginning of like basically African-American literary tradition, if not the very beginning, you know, 30, 40 years after the very beginning, like one of the first non-slave narratives piece of literature. Not that there wasn't poetry and other things, but he's writing at the early development of this thing. not saying you should cut us some slack because the ideas stand up to their own, stand up on their own. I am saying that if you read Du Bois' essay and then read Crouch's, quote unquote, refutation of that essay, I don't know that you're going to walk away and say that Crouch's was any more clear. So he makes this whole point about, um, all right, let's see, the, the two points that I found the most confusing, okay? The first point is that he says double consciousness isn't nuanced enough and doesn't take into account other things, for instance, what if the black person, so the, First of all, the idea of double consciousness is that you're both a Negro and an American and you're trying to reconcile these ideas in your head and how difficult is that? And Crouch says, well, this doesn't take into account if like you're a Negro from Kansas City versus like a Negro from Los Angeles, wouldn't you get on with the people better from Kansas City than you would from Los Angeles? That's just stupid, okay? That's just dumb, all right? We all know there's been plenty of times, university is a good example of like coming together, meet a bunch of people, and most people end up hanging out with the people from there, racial group. I mean, this just happens. Not that you won't have friends who aren't in your racial group, but most people do just end up hanging out with the people from the racial group, regardless of where they're from. Okay. It's not, it's not that weird. It's not even that, it's not even that, you know, crazy of a concept, but beyond that, beyond that idea, there's also just the simple fact that although you can have more than one thing that's defined your identity, that doesn't detract away from double consciousness. Cause one of his points was like, oh, you know, What if I'm from, again, you know, Kansas City, or what if I'm a doctor, or what if I'm a woman? What about these things? Well, you can have the double consciousness as a as a woman who's going into a male-dominated field and an American, or as a immigrant who's coming to America, or as an expat, or as a poor person going into a rich person or or a rich person society or a rich person in a poor person society. Anybody can have it. And, and in the second sex, it's mentioned the, the the feminist text, the second sex, double consciousness is brought up as something that applies to feminism. The point being that just because Du Bois, who's writing about Negroes, chooses to use this concept of the double consciousness in regards to Negroes doesn't mean that the idea doesn't work when you're talking about. Feminism, immigration, whatever form of intersectionality you want to talk about. Or if you just want to talk about pure consciousness in like Hegelian terms, you can also talk about that. There's not, this is not some weird, like nobody's ever thought of this before thing. It, it can be interpreted in many different modes, and Du Bois is interpreted in one mode. So that part made no sense. Okay. That was the first thing that didn't make any sense to me with Crouch in his refutation of Du Bois. The second thing that didn't make any sense in that essay was he goes after... So Du Bois is talking about how uh, basically like um, the true inheritors of Western culture are white people. And so it's hard for Negroes to like look at Western culture and really feel like it's a part of them. And then he talks about how this prefigures Baldwin who wrote in his essay Lost in the Village about this. And then he's all up in arms about how they're like basically saying like Western civilization, you know, even like a dumb white person has a has a inheritance from Western civilization and that's dumb. Then a few pages later, he goes on to talk about how people like Du Bois is always people like Du Bois are always um talking about how Africa used to be this or Africa used to be that and they're they're making Africa into this thing that it wasn't and how this is detrimental and how Africa was further behind than um, European civilizations and that's really the whole point of what Du Bois and Baldwin were saying too that was the whole point it was that the if you just go back a couple hundred centuries a couple hundred centuries if you just go back a few centuries Baldwin says in his essay that you would I would see the conquerors coming off the ship and this and he's referring to a Swiss village these people in the Swiss village would Although maybe not, you know, understand Bach or Beethoven or listen to him, they would be on the same landmass that had Bach or Beethoven. They would be closer to it, you know. And he also uses the example of the Empire State Building. James Baldwin has an as a as a New Yorker has an inheritance to the Empire State Building, even though he may have never been inside and never had a job. That's still something that is in like his psychic realm, you know. So I didn't really think that Crouch's point was very. impactful whatsoever. And I thought like, really, he just, he wasn't really disagreeing with Du Bois or Baldwin on that particular issue. And there's, I mean, you can go through the essay piece by piece, and he tries to refute everything Du Bois says in the essay. And I just don't think it's a very good job. And it's another example of like, for cultural criticism, I don't think Crouch's cultural criticism, uh, first of all, it's not scholarly whatsoever, and he's not trying to be. Um, And I think that Some people think the writing is very poetic and powerful. I don't think so. I think it's mainly a lot of what he accuses actual scholars of being. That is kind of mushy and uh, not well formed and coate and really just not very insightful whatsoever. So that's what I figured from the cultural criticism. And I didn't like the literary criticism either too much because he just loves Ralph Ellison. And if it's not something along the lines of Ralph Ellison's understanding of racial construct in America, then he's not for it. But he reviews a few essays, or excuse me, reviews a few books, probably the most notable of which is um, is actually the novel, it was written by Leon Forrest, it, the novel's name is Divine Days, and it has this like weird George Floyd parallel in it uh, that's interesting. So... Yeah, so anyway, the first two sections, not enjoyable. I would skip them. Uh, The last two sections are good. He does jazz reviews and movie reviews. When he talks about jazz, he's on point. Has a, a thing about Miles Davis that's really good. Has a takedown of a Duke Ellington novel that's really good. Has a eulogy to Dizzy Gillespie that's really good. So all of his jazz writing is fantastic. I would read more about him. Uh, about his jazz reviews. I know he wrote a book on Charlie Parker, and he's also in the Kinsburn documentary, Jazz. His jazz opinions, some people feel, are very uh, archaic or just, you know, kind of stuck in their times because he definitely felt like jazz reached its evolutionary end in the 1960s. He didn't see any point in free jazz, avant-garde jazz, jazz fusion, none of that. He didn't like any of that stuff. So he has very you know, uh combative jazz opinions as well. But I think that he's able to be way more even-handed when discussing jazz than he is when he's discussing race. And then the movie reviews are also solid, but they're somewhat ironic and I'll let that I'll let the movie reviews take us to the end here. So the movie reviews, he reviews these quote-unquote what are now called hood films like Boys in the Hood, Juice, Sugar Hill, and Menace to Society. And he gives these good reviews. He likes how they show the the real urban decay and they don't glorify it. And he does this and he, and he contrasts this with gangster rap throughout the book. He talks about gangster rap. I'm saving this for the end. Cause I got a whole spill on gangster rap here as I usually do and rap in general. So Crouch says these movies, these movies are good and they show what it's really like out there and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's, and that's good. He never mentions the fact that ice cube is in boys to the hood or that Tupac Shakur is uh, the star of juice he doesn't mention either one of those things he never mentions the fact that there are plenty of gangster rappers who actually are documenting what's going on and not glorifying what's going on he never does that for him gangster rap is this horrible moral decay and it's so spot on for what a lot of people thought in the 1990s and what some people still think today and his so the rap thing is throughout the book, it was the part that upset me the most while reading the book. I and I and I kind of just lump him in with the rest of who I'm choosing to call the pound cakers, right? The Bill Cosbys, the people who tell us the reason these young black, mostly males aren't doing well is their pants. The pants are too big, the pants are what is doing it. The reason they're not doing too well. It is the music. The music is what is doing it. Oh, you know what the reason they're not doing too well? Cause they say y'all and ain't. And uh, you know, they probably they'll use like slang from like the nineteen eighties. They say moms and, and yo and uh what's some other old old slang? They say they say homie, you know, things like that. <laughs> that's that's why the youth of today are failing, right? But they never go back and look at the timeline. And this has really started to upset me the older I've gotten. As we see, you can go to the Pew Research Center. You can check out the numbers for yourself. The crime rate has fallen over the last 30 years. Gangster rap, when did it start? Didn't start in 1979 with um, the Sugar Hill Gang. And it didn't start with Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. And it didn't start with Cool Mo D and LL Cool J and Run DMC. Starting about 1990. That's when it started about 1990, real that era of like real gangster rap. And since then, the crime rate has fallen. Is there a correlation? Is gangster rap responsible for stopping the crime rate since the uh, in the 2000s Chicago, which certainly has a ton of problems. Chicago certainly has a ton of problems and gang and gang violence and gun violence is one of them. The murder rate in the 1970s and the 1980s in Chicago higher than almost every year of the 2000s. Was it the hip hop that did it? I'm not saying hip hop's perfect. Of course, there's criticism, the the misogyny, the homophobia, and at times the violence and the decadence. Yeah. But some of that stuff is just turning a mirror onto society. And I'm not saying that we don't need to have accountability for all Americans, but since we're talking about black people, that black people don't need to have accountability or get a job or something. Nobody's saying that. I mean, somebody might be saying that, but that's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that when you have the crime rate falling and the murder rate falling, we should stop saying hip-hop is the thing that's tearing down the black community. We should perhaps put more emphasis on things like, here we go, crack, economic underdevelopment, disinvestment in mental health facilities and structure. And there's one more big one. What am I missing? The crack. the Oh! The prison state. The carceral prison state, the for-profit, ever-expanding, largest in the world prison state. So we could focus on some of those issues, and maybe we could put the music to the background. And just as a as a final little coda here, what does he call this? A high chorus, a high-style out chorus for this little rant. Over the last twenty years, there's been I don't know how many school shootings, mass shootings, and you know what? We don't hear anymore. It was Marilyn Manson who did it. Marilyn Manson is why we have school shootings. We don't hear that anymore. We finally got past that and realized, ah, it's mental health. Mental health is the reason why a horrible racist like Dylan Roof pops into a church and shoots people. It's mental health. Maybe he's racist too. But that one's mental health. When are we going to finally figure that out about hip-hop? Now, this book is written in the 90s. It's not a... You know, exactly a super popular view that Crouch has now. You know, this view is old now, but it's not like nobody has it. You know, John McWhorter has this view. Guy mentioned at the top, Thomas Chatterton Williams has this view. Uh, On Kendrick Lamar's last album, Damn, he plays a soundbite of a guy talking about um, how hip hop has brought, done the most damage to the black community. The Pound Cakers never seem to talk about who, like, who gave birth to these hip hoppers, you know? Pound Cakers were born in a certain generation, right? And then the next generation was born, and they raised those people. And apparently they did a good job, these Pound Cakers, right? And then that generation pretty much gave birth to the hip-hop generation, or was the hip-hop generation, the people first making hip-hop. So what happened in between those things? If you were the people, if you your communities were so good and upstanding and everybody was great and them, all you great black people who were the Pound Cakers age, and then you gave birth to these people, and raised him and you did the right thing, right? Because you wouldn't say that you didn't do the right thing. What happened then? How did you screw it up? Must have been you. We came from somewhere. Doesn't make any sense. Anyway enough about the pound cakers. So, le- so let's talk about Crouch's legacy and stuff. I mentioned McWhorter. I mentioned Chatterton Williams. Uh, Winton Wynt- Marsalis had a close connection with Crouch and also somebody who doesn't like the hip hop stuff. But all of these guys are like really solid thinkers. I don't agree with obviously their ta- takes on hip hop, but like John McWhorter is nobody's fool. Uh, Thomas Chatterton, Winton Marsalis is a, you know, one of the great jazz musicians of of uh, all time and Thomas Chatterton Williams is a very intellectual thinker and i i would say th- that's his true legacy these men specifically black men who are not scared to give out viewpoints that are different than other people's i don't necessarily agree with their viewpoints i mean i've written a piece about chatterton williams and i'm writing a piece about stanley crouch but i think that like ultimately their hearts are more or less in the right place i think some of their opinions are off and I think that um, some of Crouch's techniques were poor. That being said, you know, I appreciate, I appreciate his willingness to push it forward and that he was always an intellectual. So there's that. On the other hand, you have people who have perverted his legacy. And I don't think that they necessarily even mention his name, but I'm not even going to mention their names, right? One of them has written a book about uh, Democrats and plantations. And uh, please don't Google her or look her up. She is a waste of time. But social media and uh, the network news cycle have amplified people who would be some kind of neoconservative bastardization of Crouchian ideas. Those people are in some ways connected to his legacy, but don't really carry forward the true intellectual spirit whatsoever of Stanley Crouch. So, yeah. And then last person I'd like to mention is Wesley Morris, who is the fantastic writer for the new york times right now he's i believe he's a critic at large for the new york times he wrote a piece a couple years ago about how people aren't willing black people are sometimes not willing to criticize works of art by other black people because they're worried you know they're just so happy to see the thing break through in the first place and i thought it was a good piece because i think it's true i think there are a lot of there's a lot of stuff out there that some black people just be like well you know i'm not going to say anything bad about it even last week on the show on this podcast i said that I didn't want to mention that romance book by name. You know, and maybe that's a function of me not wanting to be negative, but maybe it would be better to just be honest about it. So, yeah, that being said, there's a big difference between criticizing something, critiquing something, and taking something down. And I feel a lot of what Crouch was doing was just taking something down. So, yeah, it's fine to like things that are made by black, or to not like something made by black people. For instance, I don't like um, the TV show Power. Uh, not a huge fan of the Jordan pill movies. I think they're fine, but just not, you know, they don't really do it for me. That romance novel from last week, didn't like it. So there you go. There are some examples of things I don't like by black people and it's okay. It is certainly okay to criticize things by black people if you're a black person. Uh, but I think when you criticize anything by anybody, you should try to do it with a little bit more eye towards being, uh, truthful, but even handed. And I don't think that, uh, that Crouch always did a great job of that. Oh, wait, one last thing. Where, where are we at? Quick thing is that there's a YouTube video of Crouch talking about 50 Cent in 2008 where he's like 50 Cent and uh, people like him because, white people like him because he appears inferior to them. And do you think that the reason, do you think that anybody on Wall Street would look at 50 Cent after reading his lyrics and say, well, this sounds like an intelligent guy. The irony of this, and there's a lot of irony in Crouch's career in general, but the, for instance, the fact that he didn't like how much people talked about race, but you know, kind of made a career off of it. Uh, but the irony of that particular video is that Crouch is talking in 2008. In 2007, 50 Cent had signed a deal to own part of vitamin water, not to just be like the spokesperson that they take advantage of, but to literally own of vitamin water. So apparently and he famously made like a hundred million dollars off of it. So apparently somebody thought he was smart enough to be a partner in in the in the Wall Street thing. And also like in that video Crouch is talking about Wall Street as if it's like the pinnacle of high culture or something. It's just a bunch of guys making money, you know? And I'm not saying that they're not smart, but there's definitely plenty of people on Wall Street who are smart in the money making sense of it and, you know, not necessarily great examples of western culture so i don't see why 50 cent wouldn't fit right in okay enough enough stanley crouch read his essays about jazz avoid everything else that's pretty much the deal with stanley crouch i'm gonna be i've written a piece about stanley crouch i'm gonna get it published somewhere when i get it published i will throw it into the show notes here also throw in the show notes of that thing I wrote about Thomas Chatterton Williams a couple years back. Uh, It's good, I think, called Schrodinger's Black Man. And then, yeah, I'll link to that YouTube video as well. Next week on the podcast, going to be reading and talking about These Toxic Things by Rachel Holzel-Hall. I've never read any of her books. This is a thriller, so I'm excited to read some fiction. It's been a while. And then in two weeks, I'm going to talk about... uh, Mateo Ascaripur, I believe I got that right. Matteo Ascaripur's debut novel, Black Buck, which came out a few months ago, but I'm just getting to now. So yeah, that's gonna be the next two weeks. And if you wanna read along to talk about those things, to listen to me talk about those things, that'd be cool. And yeah, until then, stay safe, stay black, and keep reading.